Good morning, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you, especially if you're visiting with us. I want to give you a special warm welcome. would love to meet you after the service. We'll have um, coffee and stuff to my right, so please do stick around for a few moments. It'd be a delight to meet you. We're going through uh, a new series in the book of Acts, and we're in our second sermon, and this is Acts 2. This is Pentecost. It's Acts 2, 1 through 13. This is our New Testament reading. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these, all, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites... Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come in our midst. We hear these remarkable, phenomenal stories about the work that you have done the way you have made your appearance in times past. And, Father, we do not expect something so visible, so miraculous, but nonetheless real and potent and powerful. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come in our midst through this word, through your word. Would you make your home within us, and would we then chase after the things that you want for us? Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that you would uh, be present among us, that you would bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the the very first Superman movie, the one with Christopher Reeve, he has a, a challenge because Lex Luthor has sent two nuclear missiles to each side of the country. And one is headed to California, where Lois Lane is, and millions of people are going to die. The other is headed towards Uh, New Jersey, I think it was. And even Superman, with his great speed, can't get to both and save both. And the problem is, of course, he wants to go to California because that's where Lois Lane is. But he's made a promise to Miss Tessmacher, who's Lex Luthor's right-hand woman. And so he has to go and save the East Coast first from this nuclear missile. And then he gets to California, and of course, it's too late. And the San Andreas Fault has broken in two, and Lois Lane's car has fallen into this crevice, and she's died. And so Superman shows up on the scene, and 
he does what any of us would do, right? He says, okay, well, I'm going to fly at super light speed and go around the world thousands of times. And then as the world begins to turn backwards, of course, as everyone knows, time begins to turn backwards. <laughs> and Lois Lane's car, which was in the ditch or in the crevice, and Lois Lane, who was die- dead and covered with dirt, everything begins to run backwards and everything is new again. In Acts, we see a group of people from marginal places, from marginal social classes, from largely uneducated families, from different backgrounds, with no reason whatsoever to be in the same room together, not only find common cause, but begin to turn the world upside down, or maybe from biblical perspective, begin to turn the world backwards that they begin to take the gospel, the hope around the Mediterranean basin. And it's not just a new spiritual path, but it's good news that everything that is sad and broken and sinful about our world will begin to turn backwards, will begin to retreat, that the evil in the world has finally seen its end. This news, this good news, this message that is spread in word and deed goes from Jerusalem, from this little world, little room, to the known world. And it wasn't because they looked around each other and saw all of the talent necessary for the cause. It wasn't because they had gathered all the best and brightest together. It wasn't because they worked harder than anyone else. It's that they were filled. They were filled with a supernatural presence, and in expending energy, they were filled. In being set afire, they weren't consumed, and they didn't burn out. They were gathered together and sent out by a transcendent power. What made this possible? What empowered them? What changed their lives so radically? Or better yet, who? Who empowered them? Who came and met with them and sent them out? This passage tells us of an event that we call Pentecost, that God himself in his spirit comes down upon them and fills them with his spirit. And three things happen when this happens. You see the first fruits of the future. You see the phenomenal presence of God. And then finally, the extraordinary experience of the nations. First of all, the first fruits of the future. What we have to see, first of all, is that Pentecost is not entirely new. This is an ongoing celebration. And therefore, Luke says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, it's a festival that's already established in the nation of Israel. And so we need to see what Pentecost was already when the Spirit descended upon these men and women to have a background, because, of course, they would have understood the significance of Pentecost happening on this certain day, but we need an education. We need a background. We need to know what was Pentecost beginning with. And it was celebrated during the time of the Feast of Weeks, or the Harvest of First Fruits. It was already a very special day. Something very new was happening, and yet something very old, something very connected with the past. Israel, of course, was an agrarian society, and they had these celebrations that more or less went along with the harvest time. 
And the harvest of first fruits or the feast of first fruits was when the very first things that were brought out of the field were taken to the temple. They were devoted to God as a sign, as a recognition of the fact that he was the provider and that only he could guarantee that the rest of the harvest would be brought in. So it was an act of worship. It was an act of celebration. And it happened basically around 50 days after Passover. 50 penta from our Greek Latin word, which we get Penta five, Pentecost, and that's why it's called, come to be called Pentecost. Now, what does it mean that the Spirit of God descends on the Feast of First Fruits? What could he be saying by this? What could God be conveying by sending himself, sending his presence, the Spirit descending on the Feast of First Fruits? Well, as I said, they would have picked up on this. Aha! But we need a little background. We need to look around to the rest of the Scripture, the rest of the Bible, to get a picture of why now? Why is the Spirit coming now? The Apostle Paul, who is a writer of much of the New Testament, one of his most prominent books is the book of Romans. And he says of the universe that there is a hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God decay. That's a very interesting term for a pre-modern man to use, that everything in the world is subject to decay. That's pretty advanced physics. The Big Bang understanding of the universe is that everything exploded, but then is now contracting and is now running down, that everything is falling apart and that there's more and more disorder in the world. Some of you look great. Some of you are doing great. Some of you have great jobs. You have great children. You have a great spouse. Your bank account is flush, but it will not last, and you won't be able to hold on to it. I'm sorry. I know that's kind of a downer for Sunday morning, but everything is subject to decay. Everything that you possess, everything that you are is running down. The fundamental truth to existence is that we struggle and we fight against this decay, that we want to hold on, and that we hope against this continuing decay. But Paul says, and really the whole Bible says this, that there will one day be, Paul looking back, the Bible, Old Testament looking forward, there will one day be this new movement of God, This phenomenal presence that will signal that that hope is not in vain. That that hope that the decay will one day start and stop and begin to roll backwards is not in vain. That there will be a new liberation that will come down from heaven that will be a reversal of that decay. And here, when the Spirit comes upon these men and women in phenomenal ways, when does it come? At what time? At what celebration? At the harvest of first fruits. Luke is saying that hope is being established now, presently, in your midst, disciples. That hope that decay is not the end of the story is coming true now, and it's the first fruits. The future is coming into the present. In October of 1871, The Great Chicago Fire destroyed most of Chicago, but surprisingly, the flames started on the other side of the river river from where most of the population was and where most of the destruction happened. How did it 
leap across the river. Well, part of the explanation was a series of high winds on that day and the the, uh, days coming after that actually moved the flames from kind of ship to ship to the sails and the the very dried out wood of the of the bow and so forth that the the fire jumped but part of the explanation is also that in those days the Chicago River was this shallow sluggish sewer of a river the union stockyards in Chicago dumped all of their animal waste just right into the river and that it was so bad and so sluggish that it became combustible and that the flames could actually move across the river because there were so much just disease and feces and combustible things sitting in that river. And waterborne diseases broke out all over the city year after year. And this really was the story of the industrialized uh, cities in those days. And they didn't know where it was coming from or how to control it. And so every year, tens of thousands of people died from cholera and typhoid. But in 1885, 14 years after the great fire of Chicago, the city engineers finally had an idea and they took action and they dug a 28-mile-long canal moving more dirt and rock than the Panama Canal. And they set in a series of locks and gates. And then on January 2nd, 1900, a worker opened the sluice gates at the front of the canal at Lake Michigan, and all of the Great Lakes began to flow into the Chicago River. Fresh water began to wash over that sluggish sewer of a river and clean it out. And of course, it took a while for the water to come 28 miles into the river and took even longer for the river to be cleaned out so that you could actually think of the Chicago River as a clean place, of something that you could actually drink from and swim in. And the new water, as it came out of the gate, not only cleaned the river basin, but it reversed. The historical flow of the Chicago River was entirely reversed. The water came in into that sewer and began to push it out, and it began to flow in reverse all the way to the Mississippi River. Instead of shallow and sluggish and diseased water making the community sick year after year, now the river brought life. What God does at Pentecost is even more astonishing because he is reversing the flow of the very human soul. He is reversing the flow of creation itself. Creation has been flowing in one direction since the very beginning of human history. And the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is the opening of that gate where water begins to flow. Now, when that gate was opened in Chicago, you couldn't stand in the middle of the river and claim that there's no hope because the gates have been opened and the water is beginning to flow. But you also couldn't stand in the Chicago River and say everything is okay because you're still standing in muck and sewage. You couldn't be overly triumphalistic, and you couldn't be overly pessimistic. There was still death and decay everywhere you looked, but the water was flowing, and therefore there was reason for hope. The gates have been opened. The water is coming. Not everything is taken care of yet, but one day it will. One day this river basin will be full of fresh water and fish teeming in it, and it will be the source of life for this city. The waters are flowing, and they begin flowing in a dramatic way through the presence of the Spirit 
at Pentecost. But there's more to come because when does it come? The harvest of first fruits. The Spirit is the first fruits of the future. He is the very presence of heaven itself where things begin to roll backwards. The earth begins to turn backwards. But there's still more to come. The Spirit is flowing through the church to wash over the sluggish and putrid waters, the diseased waters of our own hearts first, and then of the whole world as a down payment, first fruits. It reverses the flow of the spiritual and social, psychological and emotional breakdown that we see every day, and therefore there can be hope. It's initial, not total, but it's no less real. First of all, Pentecost is the first fruits of the future. It's a down payment on something even bigger that's coming in the future, but it's also the phenomenal presence of God. Pentecost is not only a new happening, but it's a new presence. It's the presence of God himself, and he announces himself with wind and with fire. We see again that Pentecost is not something entirely new, but it's something very old because God has appeared this way before. To Abraham, God comes as a burning torch. To Moses, God comes in a burning bush. To Job, God appears as a whirlwind. And most importantly, most connected to this celebration He comes to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up on the mountain after coming out of Egypt, after God has rescued the Israelites, he goes up on the mountain to get this new covenant represented in the form of law, that God is now for the Israelites, and he is creating and constituting a new people. And Moses goes up on the mountain, and what happens? Wind and fire. The Israelites are afraid. In many ways, that was the first Pentecost. And now we see the second, not something entirely new. You experience the future now. It's the first fruits of the future, but also you experience the transcendent now as you meet with God. You experience the one who is outside of time itself. How? How does this happen? Well, we see as the Holy Spirit comes into that room that he's He's outside of time, but not outside of reality. We read in the last chapters of Luke where Jesus, after his resurrection, he meets people on the road to Emmaus, and then he goes to the disciples who are huddled in this room, and he has a body. He eats with them, and he shows them the scars that he has. He's a real physical person, and yet he walks through doors, yet he ascends into heaven. There's something very real and present and yet something very transcendent. And here the Holy Spirit comes into the room and the men and women gathered there experience him not in some esoteric, surreal way that can't be described, but on the other hand, not in a way way that's easily understood. Suddenly, it says, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. You see, they're trying to grapple with something that they can't quite understand. It's real. It's present. It's not a violent wind, but it's like a violent wind. It's not incomprehensible completely. It's not just surreal. 
but it's, on the other hand, not something that can be fully put to words. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on each of them. Transcendent but real, mystical yet rational. And no other religion talks about God in this way. You can certainly reject this as unreal, as untrue. You can certainly pass it off and say, I'm not interested in that. But you can't patronize it by assimilating it into other types of approaches to God because it's completely different. It's completely new. They're not simply learning the truth, but they're experiencing the truth. Christianity is not a set of disembodied principles and ideas, nor is Jesus just a teacher or an example, but he's embodied truth. He's embodied spiritual power, and the Spirit comes to bring Jesus into this room in a real, physical, potent, present way. God is interjecting himself into his world in a way that's beyond full comprehension, but yet still discernible, and you can still point to it and say something like a rushing wind just happened. The Spirit is present. I love watching different approaches to advertising, and one of the companies that does the advertising really well is Volkswagen. And a few years back, there was one where a dad was pulling out of his driveway, and the son rushes out and gets on his bike on the sidewalk, and they race to the stop sign. And it's the cutest thing, you know, because they're racing. And I've done that, I don't know how many times with my kids, where I race them to the end of the block where they're running or on their bike or something. But the best ad was 2011, the Super Bowl ad. And it begins with this kid dressed as Darth Vader. And he's attempting to use the force around the house. And with Star Wars music playing in the background, he marches down the hallway and he raises his hands dramatically towards the dryer. You know, the force is going to open this. And nothing happens. And then the next scene, Darth Vader points his hands at the family dog lying in the middle of the room, and the dog just kind of looks up at him in a puzzled way, and nothing happens. But he doesn't give up. He goes into his sister's bedroom, and he raises his hands forcefully toward a doll seated on the bed, and the doll just stares back at him blankly and doesn't budge. Again, nothing happens. And so little Darth puts his hands to the side and mopes and walks into the kitchen And he's so dejected, and he's just sitting with his head in his hands, and his mom pushes a sandwich over to him, and he pushes it away. He's so mad. And then his father, in a Volkswagen, you know, has to be a commercial, finally, pulls into the driveway, and little Darth runs out, and the dad bends down to hug him, and Darth just pushes him away, and he runs to the car, and force, I'm going to use the force to start this car. And he holds it. And he holds it, and the dad walks in, and suddenly the lights blink, and the engine comes on, and he's startled, and he backs up. And he looks back at the car. He looks at the kitchen. He looks at the car. What just happened? What just happened? The force finally worked. How do I explain this? How do I get my head around this? They were filled with the Holy Spirit, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. What 
just happened? What is going on in this room? How do we explain this? But it wasn't just for special effects. God wasn't just putting on a laser light show. He was, in fact, using an ignition to start this process, to start the church, to start the new age of the Spirit. And those without power in and of themselves who don't have the force are amazed, and they stumble back and are like, what just happened? Let's go back into the Old Testament again briefly. If we're talking about the second Pentecost, what did God come to do at the first? He came, it says, to declare his name. There's wind and fire, but it's not just to give thrills. It's not just special effects. It's for a purpose, to show who he is. And Moses goes to God and says, God, I need to know that you are with us. And he says, what? Show me your glory. I want the transcendent power. I want a sign that I can take down to the Israelites so that they will know you are with me. And God says, Moses, you don't understand. You can't see my glory. No sinner can see my glory. You would die, but I will show you my goodness, and I will declare my name to you. And he does this strange thing. He sets Moses in the cleft of a rock, And he says, I will pass by you, and I will cover you with my hand so that you will not be obliterated, and I will let you see not my glory, because that would kill you, but my goodness. And Moses gets just a glimpse of God, and what does he say? Exodus 34, and God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. What? I love to forgive people, but I won't let debts go unpaid. I love forgiving sin, but I can't clear the guilty. Which one is it? God, come on, choose. You've got to choose one. You can't be both. And he says, no. Because we're not encountering our ideal of God. Moses is not encountering his ideal of God. We're encountering the actual God, the real God. Not a God who winks at wrongdoing, nor one who is capricious and angry. But they were encountering, and in this room, just as Moses did on the mountain, The apostles did in this room were encountering a phenomenal presence that holds both of those things together. He doesn't just act on justice, which would please sort of one side of the room, one side of the political spectrum, people who like black and white, people who like high walls, think about good and evil in very binary ways. But he also doesn't just act on forgiveness, which may please the other side of the room. People who say, well, at least he tried. If there's a God, he must love everyone indiscriminately. You see, each has a kernel of the truth, but this is embodied truth. This is phenomenal presence. And you can't be filled with the Spirit. You can't receive the Spirit until you embrace both. A justice that is far higher than you could ever imagine and a love that far transcends your idea of it. 
It's a phenomenal presence. But then it's not just the apostles that experience it. It's who? The nations. All of those words that I tried to impress you by saying, well, and then stumbled over all of them, those were the nations. That was representative of everyone, all of the Jewish diaspora that had gathered back in Jerusalem, either because of the festival or they are now living there. These were converts from all over the world that had come, and they began to hear in their own language. One more time back to Mount Sinai. What was going on there? Moses had gone up, as I said, to meet with God. He was given the Ten Commandments, and he comes down and with Joshua, and Joshua says, what's that I hear in the camp? Is that a sound of war? No, Moses says, it's a sound of singing. They were singing and dancing around a golden calf. Moses had been up on the mountain far too long. He had left them out in the desert. And so they made a golden calf and worshipped it. And Moses throws down the stone tablets and destroys them. And then he goes back to God after burning the golden calf. And he goes up on the mountain begging God to be patient and to have mercy upon these people, his people. And he even offers himself as a substitute. God, take your anger out on me so that the people can be saved. But God tells him, Moses, you're not this person. You're not the substitute. He will not destroy Israel, but he will still lead them into the land he promised. In spite of the favor of the failure of the golden calf, God says, I will lead you. And he gives him new law and reconstitutes the people of Israel. And he says, I will drive out the nations on your behalf. Drive them out. You have nothing to fear. I am with you. I will drive out the nations. But be careful to obey. You failed at the golden calf. This time, remember who it is that provides for you. How? He gives them a festival. He tells them, remember who is your provider. Celebrate the feast of works. Celebrate me as your provider, as your savior, as your rescuer with, by bringing the first fruits. Appear before the Lord, gives them a number of things. One of those is celebrate the feast of weeks. And then appear before the Lord, and I will drive out the nations before you and enlarge your territory. Failure golden calf. He renews the covenant, gives them a new promise, and says, I will be for you. I will be merciful to you. I will drive out the nations in Acts, Pentecost, the reconstitution of this event. You see failure of the disciples. They don't recognize Jesus' death as being the reason he lived. They don't understand what has happened. They deny him. They abandon him. They leave him. Failure. And what does God do? Cast them out? Remember them no more? No. Just like at Sinai, he renews the covenant. He gives them a new law. He gives them the presence of the Spirit and says, now go. But not, the promise is not that I will drive out the nations, but I will use you to be a blessing to the nations. I will bring the nations in. And we see at Pentecost, this rushing wind, we see flames, we see tongues. All of the languages 
of those that had gathered there heard in their own language. Not to draw them out, not to drive them out, but to draw them in. How? Moses, you're not the one. You're not the substitute. Because sin is so much more severe than any do good and live a good life strategy can possibly comprehend. Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth, you are not good enough to be the substitute. You are not holy enough. You are not without blemish. You are a sinner yourself. You can't pay the price. And yet, so much more loving than any God accepts everyone indiscriminately metric can possibly comprehend. Moses, you can't possibly love your people like I can. You're not an adequate substitute. Instead of Moses, you get Jesus. The phenomenal presence of God in the person of Jesus. And at this moment at Pentecost, the justice of God is represented in Jesus. The justice of God falls upon Jesus. And therefore, you can come to God expecting his love. The phenomenal presence of Jesus in person, embodied, goes to the cross. He absorbs the justice of God and he gives love. And not only to you, but to everyone, to anyone. The people gathered there heard the gospel in their own languages. And therefore, Jerusalem was not the final resting place of grace. It wasn't where God's, present rest, God's spirit rested to bless the already convinced, but it's the place where the first fruits came down. It's the place from which the people were sent. Moses wasn't an adequate substitute, but Jesus was. And Jesus leaves the earth, he ascends, and says, I will send you a helper, the comforter, the one who will continue to do all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And now, as we leave this time, we're sent to the table. We come to the table to encounter the phenomenal presence of Jesus himself, the phenomenal presence of God. It's not flaming tongues and violent wind, it's bread and wine. It seems much more meager, but it's no less real. And as you come to the table, you eat of the first fruits, the down payment that says one day this will last forever. One day there will be a feast so much greater than this that will go on forever in heaven. And here's the guarantee, here's the first fruits, here's the deposit. You come to the table to encounter the phenomenal presence of God. You eat of the first fruits, and then you go. You go to the nations. This table is not just for you, but it's an invitation to everyone. And that's what we want to embody as a church and as we come to this table. Let me pray for our meal together and pray for our time in conclusion. Lord, we pray that we would be people who understand your presence, who understand the first fruits, to understand that there is now a task for your church. And not everyone here is convinced, and some of us who are Christians are wavering. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us again in this table, whether we come as professing believers or as we sit and ponder whether we could begin to believe, whether Jesus is who he claims to be and he could be Lord of our lives. Wherever you find us this morning, would you meet with us? Would you enable us to take a step 
forward into your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.